Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Well Then, where we talk about how to take a mind-body-spirit approach to living our most vibrant and loving lives. Today's guest is one that I am beyond excited for you all to hear from. As many of you know, I spend a lot of time talking about love and how we can ultimately love better and healthier, starting with ourselves and then trickling out into all of the relationships in our lives. And because of the nature of what I teach about and speak about, a lot of people who find me are people who are going through heartbreak. Breakups and heartbreak are something that are inevitable for most of us. We all experience it at some point in our lives. And I also think that they are sort of the breeding ground or most fertile opportunity for the most powerful and profound transformations that we can go through in life. But when you're in it, it sucks. And a lot of us go through patterns of feeling like no matter how hard we we try, we can't get over our ex. And so today's guest is pretty much an expert in how to get over your ex and get over the feeling of love addiction and, and having somebody that just like keeps tugging at your heartstrings, even though you know they're not good for you. And our conversation today was such a powerful one. So today you'll hear from Dr. Courtney Warren, who is a board-certified clinical psychologist and former tenured associate professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Having won numerous professional awards for her research, Dr. Courtney is an expert on addictions, self-deception, romantic relationships, and the practice of psychotherapy from a cross-cultural perspective. Her newest work is a self-help book on love addiction and breakups called Letting Go of Your Ex. And in today's conversation, we talk all about her new book, all about why it's hard to get over our exes sometimes, how to do it, and what's on the other side of it, most importantly, because that's, that's why we do this work, is for the payoff, for the reward, and for who we become as a result. So I am very excited for you to hear from Dr. Courtney herself. And without further ado, let's dive right in. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Courtney. I am so excited to have you on the Well Then podcast. Thank you. It is delightful to be here. I know that there are so many people in my community who are very eager for the topic that we are going to dive into and to get their hands on a copy of your new book. Um, because as you and I were just talking about, so many people pretty much everybody face, faces heartbreak at some point. I think it's inevitable for all of us. Um, I think fortunately and unfortunately, because we do learn and grow so much from it when we are intentional about it. So I'm really excited to get the opportunity to learn from you today and have you share more about the work that you do to help people get over their exes and, and move forward from heartbreak. Wonderful. Well, you know, you really can't escape this life without having your heart broken. And you also are very likely to break someone else's heart. So mm, it goes true. both ways. <laughs> yeah, it's a two-way uh, All of us, you know, are in this together, actually, in the sense that we're probably all going to be on both sides at some point. And so having some grace and gratitude and empathy as we go through these experiences is really the most loving thing we can do for ourselves and for those we encounter along the way. Yeah, that is that is so true. When we are in those moments of heartbreak, sometimes it can feel like, you know, we're the only one who's feeling this way. And we might sometimes forget that we have been or will be at some point on the other side of it. And that compassion really goes a long way. 
Absolutely. So there's a lot that I'm excited to dive into today, Um, but your new book, Letting Go of Your Ex, talks um, a lot about this idea of kind of love addiction. And I feel like that's one of those terms that is kind of like a buzzword, might get thrown around on social media, and people might not have a clear understanding of like what that really means. Like, can you be addicted to love? What does that look like? Can So can we just kind of start there and, and give a, a picture of what somebody might be experiencing when they are struggling to get over their ex? Absolutely. You know, love addiction is not a clinical diagnosis. So I want to be sure to say right off the bat that this isn't something that you would come into my office with and I would say, oh, you're a love addict or you're struggling with love addiction um, as a clinical term. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you can be addicted to a mate is really, really a burgeoning topic up for discussion because there is a large amount of neurobiological data that is coming out in some very solid research findings, looking at the brain and how we experience romantic love such that it looks very addictive, not only in the reward center that it's activating in your brain, but also in the psychological experience of love. So let me let me put this in more general terms. When you fall in love, you actually have an experience that looks highly addictive, and it was probably evolutionarily designed to be that way. You meet someone, and for whatever reason, they catch your attention. They're captivating. You start thinking about them. You're obsessing about them. You find yourself checking your phone and looking on social media and looking for emails for information about them. And over time, If a relationship develops, you start to associate them with euphoria. You feel amazing when you're with them. They're so exciting. They're so interesting. When they're near, you feel wonderful. And so in that way, falling in love looks very much like being addicted to a substance, which is usually how we use the term addiction. But it's actually to a person. You think about them, you obsess over them, you crave them, you want to be with them because it feels so wonderful when you're together. And so the idea of love addiction really stems from that. It stems from this natural euphoric high that we often feel when we fall in love, that honeymoon phase of romance. What happens is that generally we don't think of being in love as a problem because it feels amazing. So it really isn't problematic until it is. And when it's most problematic is if you find that you've fallen in love with someone who really isn't healthy for you or who doesn't want to be in a relationship with you. They don't love you back or they don't think it's going to work for them. Then you can get thrown into a really painful cycle of addictive symptoms that focus on your ex, but keep you stuck on them as if you were still in a relationship with them. Mm, Yeah. So you're left in that cycle of, of almost like feeling like you're having withdrawals when you're not hearing from them and the anxiety that that might cause and then the high when they finally do text you and that sort of up and down roller coaster. It's all of that. So think of your ex in that situation as your addictive stimulus. It's use. So when you are in touch with them, when they email you, when they text you, if you see a little tidbit of information about them on social media, 
it's like you're getting a little dopamine hit in your brain. It's like you're getting a little hit of your stimulus. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is then you feel a little bit of relief. There's something that getting contact with your ex brings you that actually feels better in the short term, in that moment, mm -hmm. um, because you have some contact, you have some version of feeling close to them, them again. But what happens in the long term, unfortunately, is that it will fuel more obsessive thinking, more cravings for them, a stronger desire to reach out, a stronger desire to act in ways either to make yourself feel closer again, like continuing to check on social media or reaching out to friends to see if you can learn information about what they're doing now, or distracting yourself from your pain by drinking or shopping or self-harm behaviors or not eating or anything to remove the focus from your ex to something else. And that cycle can be absolutely devastating for many of us because it's like you're fixated on your former lover, but they aren't with you anymore. So you're still thinking about them so often I will have people say to me, I don't even like my ex. I don't <laughs> want to be with them. I don't want to be thinking about them, but yeah. I can't seem to stop myself. Why am I still thinking about them? Why do I check online? Why am I checking my phone constantly to see if they've updated their TikTok channel or if there's a new picture on Instagram? Why am I doing this? I don't even understand it because I actively want to let go and change. And that is really that miserable, addictive cycle of letting go that the book is about. Yeah. And for that reason, I see so many people who get stuck in this cycle of breaking up and getting back together with a really unhealthy partner, potentially toxic relationship. And it's like that's that same feeling of like they know it's bad for them. And yet it almost feels like a compulsive behavior. Like they can't help it. They just, after a certain amount of time passes, they've got to reach out and give in and get back together with them. That is very, very accurate. You know, we call that in psychological terms, relationship churning. Mm. It's that churning phase where you know it's over or intellectually you want it to be over because you can see that this relationship is not going to work either because they're not in love with you or you're not in love with them in the same way, or there are really toxic dysfunctional patterns between you. You're not a good fit at some level, and yet you keep going back. Mm -hmm. Or when they call you for that booty call late at night, you answer the phone. Yeah. Or when you're feeling really sensitive at work or you're really missing them, or it's that Tuesday date night that you used to always go to the local bar together, whatever it is sucks you back in. And once you get back in, you're entering into this, gosh, are we together? Are we not? It somehow is more reinforcing to still be churning in many yeah. ways than to actually cut it off and deal with your authentic feelings about the breakup. Yeah. And I know that uh, for anybody who's been there before, we know that that is so hard to do. It's easier said than done. But I am personally such an advocate for no contact after a breakup, like mm -hmm. no following each other on social media or stalking to see what they're up to, not participating in those text exchanges until you're in a place where you feel emotionally 
a little bit healthier and more stable. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. And also what people can do when they want to go no contact, but just like feel those strong impulses of, I just need to check their Instagram or like, I want to respond to their text. Yes. Well, I really, I really agree with you on the no contact. One of the first things that I do with people who, who I work with and certainly very strongly in the book is to minimize contact as much as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Because remember, when you think about romantic love as an addictive process, anytime you're around your ex or you're getting information about them, you're essentially using. It's like you're staying connected to them in your own mind. Mm -hmm. And so really cutting off contact as much as possible, even if it's just for the short term, is going to make the transition to entering in, into a new life without them much easier for you. If you're in a situation where you actually can cut off contact, I would say do it. Mm -hmm. No more email, set a boundary, no more text messages, no more calling. The book that I just wrote actually has a number of skills that you can use and learn to help yourself that are based in cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT is really looking at the interconnections between how you think about something, how you emotionally feel about it, and then how you want to act. And those things clearly all go together. So let's take an example. Let's say it's late at night and you're thinking about your ex and you just have this overwhelming sadness and craving to call them. You might be thinking in your head, I can't stand it anymore. I have to reach out. I'm so pathetic. I feel so lonely. I need to talk to them. Mm -hmm. The emotion associated with those thoughts is going to be horribly sad, very depressed, perhaps even self-loathing and full of shame. And the behavior is going to be to want to send that text message or maybe send a social media post that's like a really cute picture of you from last night or anything to try to elicit some sort of response to make the contact, to make that use happen. So there are so many ways that you can actually intervene in that really unhealthy thought, behavior, feeling cycle. For example, one thing that I would urge people to do that's also in the book is to learn how to write out your cravings. Mm -hmm. When you have those moments of intense cravings, oftentimes it feels like it's never going to go away unless yeah. you reach out. It's never going to go away unless I look on that Instagram post or I text my friend or I text them. And the reality is that it actually has to. You can't stay that engaged in a craving state or that emotionally charged forever. Right. <laughs> and so if you can then practice a skill or technique to ride it out, you actually will not only feel better over time, but you will prove to yourself that you actually don't need them. You don't need them to feel better. So you can do a meditation. You can call a friend. You can practice a skill called distress tolerance that we use a lot in CBT or in a dialectical behavior therapy model where you literally sit with your emotion and do nothing and remind yourself that it is actually going to pass. 
You can engage in self-care behaviors. Do something that makes you feel good. Take a bath, chew a piece of gum to get a different sensation in your body. Do some jumping jacks. There are so many other alternatives that if you practice them over time, you will actually come to a place where you really can shift your symptoms, feel better, and lead yourself out of this breakup misery into the next life adventure. Who are you? What are you? And how can you help yourself not get into this same relationship dynamic in the future, which is part of that journey of healing too? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably the most important part as much as like what feels the most pertinent uh, in the moment is just getting through the pain of that particular heartbreak. I think it's just as important to identify like, why do I keep ending up with the same type of partners? Or why does this dynamic keep repeating in my love life? Why am I engaging in this? It's so critical. And you know, I when I think about someone who's really in the throes of a bad breakup. So you're you're just breaking up and you're having those kind of core love addicted symptoms where you're thinking about them, you want answers, you want to talk to them, you want to see if you can change them. You want mm. some version of what can I do? I'm so miserable. I'm craving them. I'm feeling sad. I'm acting impulsively and compulsively. I feel out of control. The first step is to help you stop some of those symptoms and regain some self-efficacy. So that's kind of in the moment. How can I help you in today so that you can get through the day and and really stop the immediate symptoms? It's like the acute phase. But the next part of your recovery really is to understand yourself differently and see how you got here in the first place. And that's going to require some pretty deep introspection around your relationship patterns, around what you're attracted to, around what you learned in early childhood about romantic love, about your value as a person, looking at some of the self-deceptive beliefs that you probably hold about your ex that are keeping you stuck in, in your own mind on them, that keep you going back for more, that keep you in that churning phase of, well, maybe I can fix them or maybe they'll change or maybe there's hope that they're not going to act that, that way anymore. Or maybe I should change and just accept them for who they are and go along with it, even though it doesn't really authentically feel good to me. Mm. That journey of understanding yourself and what you were attracted to about them, and if that was coming from a really healthy, helpful place, or if that was coming from a place of insecurity and pain, is critical to ensuring that you don't recreate this same dynamic with your next love relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And I'm really excited to dive into that so we can give people some sort of tangible steps for how to go about that process. Mm -hmm. um, but on the on the no contact piece, I have gotten a lot of questions, um, especially lately from people who wonder what they should do if this person isn't somebody that they complete, can completely cut out contact with. Like you mentioned, if it's possible, do it. But um, I get questions from people like, you know, what if it's a colleague that I was dating or somebody who's in my friend group or somebody that I have to see regularly and can't really avoid it, then what? And that is really also a common situation, especially if you have children together too. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say is 
you want to take ownership over your contact with them. So what I mean by that is you want to stop any uninitiated or undeliberate contact with them. It may be that you have to have contact with them at work. You have to talk to them about your kids' schedules. You have to have some interaction. So the first step would be becoming very clear about how, when, and why you're going to communicate with them. Mm -hmm. In general, I recommend to people that they have as little in-person, face-to-face dialogue as possible. It's oftentimes the most triggering for people. It's also very easy to misconstrue conversations when you're in the moment because you don't have as much preparation and time to process whatever it is that you're discussing. And if you're really struggling through a breakup, oftentimes in-person conversations lead to discussion of topics that are really not in your best interest or really not helpful. It could be a fight or it could be, you know, rehashing that same relationship issue that you've been rehashing for weeks or years now Mm -hmm. and can't seem to move on from. So what I would say is get very clear about first how you're going to communicate with them. This might mean you only communicate with them via email, or when you see them in the hallway, you're not going to engage in a conversation with them, or uh, you only talk about certain subjects with them. Then I would be really direct and set a boundary. So in, in psychological terms, we talk about boundaries as really communicating to yourself and to the other person who you are, what you're comfortable with, and how you're going to respond if someone doesn't treat you the way that you are asking for them to treat you. Mm -hmm. It isn't about controlling your ex because you actually can't control your ex. (laughs) You can't control anyone. As much as we wish we could. (laughs) We wish we could. We wish we could say, don't talk to me that way or don't. That's not actually going to be helpful. And it's actually not setting a boundary. Setting a boundary is really saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I hope you will do. And this is how I am going to act if you don't adhere to my request. Right. So for example, let's say you're trying to set a boundary such that when they reach out to you late at night and want to come over, you're now going to say no. You might say to your ex, I am really trying to move on from this relationship and I'm having a hard time doing so when I see you. So I would really like to request that you not text me late at night or really not text me at all. Mm -hmm. And if you do, what I am going to do is not respond, period. And so you've communicated what you want, what you need and how you're going to respond. And now your job is the next time they text you, to pause, notice they texted, and not respond. Maybe even delete that response because you really don't want to be tied to them anymore. You're trying to detach yourself from the contact. If it's somebody that you work with, maybe you say something like, I know we work together. I'm undoubtedly going to see you. I am not going to engage in conversation with you about anything personal. If we have to have a discussion about a work event or a work situation, I will do that. And then I am not going to talk about anything else. And I'm going to request that you do the same. 
if you do ask me about my personal life or who I'm dating or whatever, I'm not going to respond. And so in this way, you're really taking your power back. You're really finding your voice and trying to create a new way of relating to your ex that is helpful to you and not harmful to you. In an ideal world, you would probably be able to cut off contact completely because that really makes the healing process a lot easier as you're less triggered in the moment by contact with them. Mm -hmm. But if it's not possible, your job is to do whatever you can do to help yourself get through this. And that means limiting any conversations that are sexual, any interaction that is alluding to a bond or an attachment or a romance that you're actually trying to stop now. Mm -hmm. Because the more you get into sexual dialogue, romantic dialogue, the harder it's going to be for you to move on because you're going to stay in that churning phase. And that's a really yeah. painful place to be. It is. Yeah. Going from the feelings of hope of like, maybe, maybe it can work out, you know, maybe um, they'll change or I'll change or whatever. And then and then flowing into the disappointment when that inevitably doesn't happen. That's it is such a tough place to be. Absolutely. It's that, you know, breakups are very much about the loss of a person, right? Probably a person that you really cared about and really loved at some point in your life. But they're also about the loss of a dream yeah. and of a lifestyle and of a fantasy version of a life that you could have had with this person that isn't manifesting in the way that you would have wanted. And so a lot of the internal experience of letting go of your ex is actually becoming more honest with yourself about the fact that this probably really is a loss and your whole life might be changing. You might be moving you might lose your social supports. You might lose mutual friends. You may have a drastic shift in even your core identity, how you saw yourself and, and how you interacted in your daily lifestyle. And coming to a place where you can acknowledge that and really radically accept that this person isn't who you really wanted them to be in the end the relationship isn't what you wanted it to be in the end, and that you can still get through it, that you still have you, that you're still just as valuable now as you were when you were dating, that there is another life out there that you can create for yourself and emerge into with grace and love and respect. And seeing this breakup as actually an opportunity for growth as a gift that you don't see in the moment because it's so brutally painful and so terrible and so jarring, but that in a year from now, hopefully you'll look back on with great gratitude and forgiveness for your mistakes and for your ex's mistakes along the way because it taught you something. It taught you something about yourself. It taught you something about love, about relationships, about what you need and want in a partner that you may not have learned without this wonderful love affair and brutal breakup. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's obviously so much to grieve that you alluded to when you're going through a heartbreak and and 
giving yourself space and time and permission to be able to grieve is so important. But you also, everything you just said, you also mentioned in the book, like seeing breakups as something that actually has the potential to be a really positive transformational experience and and one of the best things that ever happened to you. And it doesn't feel that way in the moment, but I know that I can look back on my heaviest heartbreaks and say without a doubt, they are some of the best things that ever happened to me because I think those experiences, especially when we're intentional about the healing, actually lead us closer to ourselves first and most importantly, but closer to the type of love that I think we all really want to experience. It absolutely can. You know, I think at some point during a breakup or during actually any really difficult, adverse experience that you have in life, you have to come to a place where you ask yourself, am I going to let this break me? Am I going to let this make me bitter and miserable and resentful and unforgiving? Or am I going to embrace this as a journey that can transform me and bring me great wisdom? Mm. And it's not that it's going to be pain-free. It's going to hurt either way. It's really a shift in perspective and intention. One of them is how can I help myself grow through this? And the other one is sort of a resignation to the pain. And unfortunately, when we get stuck in the cycles of pain, we oftentimes lie to ourselves about the nature of our behavior. We will spread our pain to everyone around us, not intentionally, not because we want to hurt others, but because we become so mired in our own bitterness, our own sadness, our own experience that nothing else seems to have value anymore. And so we can do great damage to our friendships, to our family relationships, to our productivity at work, to our well-being, our physical health and our mental health because we aren't embracing the steps and the tools that we actively need to practice to get ourselves out and instead kind of wallow in that misery. And, you know, that's not to say that the grieving process doesn't mean acknowledging your misery. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think it's really important for you to let yourself feel the disappointment and experience the anger and the rage and the sadness and the despair that often comes with relationships. But you can't let yourself stay there because I, as a psychologist, I'm not doing any of my patients any good if they have an objectively painful experience they're going through and I stay mired in it with them. Mm. At some point, you have to get some balance in your life again where you say, this sucks. I am really struggling. So now what? What am I going to do with the information that I have so that I don't become brutally, miserably bitter and emerge from this a grateful, transformed human. Because I guarantee you that all of us are going to go through pain. Life is so hard. Even if you're living an amazing life and you're a wonderful person, you're going to have some adversity. 
And the way that you choose to respond to that adversity is actually what is going to most determine how fulfilled you are in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you touched on that because a lot of people do often get caught in that cycle of like getting their heart broken really badly and then maybe becoming bitter or cynical about love in general and maybe being um, a little bit more adverse to take risks, to be vulnerable, to fall in love again. And um, I was actually just reading, I don't know if you've heard of the book, The Good Life, um, Dr. Robert Waldinger. It's about the um, sort of like decades long study uh, Harvard Medical Center has done on, on individuals and families and like what really contributes to happiness and to us living a good life to longevity mm-hmm. and all the, all the things and their conclusion over the last eight decades I think of research they've been doing is that it's relationships that relationships are what make us healthy happy people and not just romantic relationships all of our relationships but um yeah I think to your point that when we get stuck in that place of feeling bitter or broken because of heartbreak, we then disconnect from the potential of feeling loved and giving love and having that connection that contributes to to such a good life and to helping us through chapters of adversity when they come our way. So it's definitely something important to acknowledge. And I'm also very curious for you to expand on that idea of self-deception and the ways that we might lie to ourselves. I know you gave your TED talk on this topic and I think it's yes. so important to address because we we do. It is so easy for us to get caught in these little like white lies to ourselves or big lies at times. Mm-hmm. And I see this a lot in the realm of date, like the dating phase of relationships and people mm-hmm. lying to themselves about their intentions for actually getting into relationships. Like mm-hmm. maybe saying that it's just because like they want to be in love, like they want to be connected to somebody, but beneath the surface, there's a lot more sort of fears and insecurities that are really driving their motivation to be in a relationship and like their inability to be on their own, to be alone. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that and some of the other ways that we deceive ourselves. Uh, There's so much in there. Well, I certainly echo the research on interpersonal relationships and social belonging. It's probably the biggest research-based predictor of mental health, actually. And there's a ton of research on physical health also Mm -hmm. to suggest that really your quality of life is so strongly influenced by the quality of your relationships. And that as humans, we're actually very social beings. We need connection. We need support. We need to feel a part of a community and we also need to contribute to the community. And so when you think about that in the context of breakups, so much of social interactions and clearly your romantic relationship is ending. So those dynamics are shifting dramatically and being sure that you still have a sense of self as a member of a family, of a group, of a friend community, even of, you know, a self-help community, which is something I strongly recommend to people, either entering a group therapy context or joining Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous or any kind of community that's interested in elevating each other, in supporting each other through heartache, 
in trying to understand how we got there and then emerge through it is so important so that you don't feel alone and so that yeah. you know that you're not the only one going through this. People have been dealing with heartbreak since the beginning of humans, probably. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you look, up, look at pop culture and you think about music and you think about architecture, you know, the large majority of songs that we listen to are either about falling in love or breaking up. So, you know, it dominates the human experience. And I don't want to downplay how important social relationships are to recovering from a love-addicted breakup. They're incredibly important. In terms of self-deception, we as humans are so good at lying to ourselves. And I mean that with with all of the love for all of us. I am included in this. All of us are included in this. One of the things that I see so obviously in people who are in love is that they don't understand that part of the love addictive process is based in fantasy. That Whatever attributes you you believed your partner had when you fell for them were probably highly skewed and overly positive. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that your ex wasn't a good person or didn't have some great qualities. It's just that when we fall in love, we generally deceive ourselves into thinking that our ex is the best. Our, our mate is this perfect person. They complete us. We feel so good when we're around them that they must be this superhuman entity. <laughs> and you go talk to your friends about it and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm dating this person. And you, you're looking at their face and they're just glowing, right? And they have this affect that is absolutely giddy and elated and effusive about this person and they're so amazing and they're so wonderful and they're so handsome and they're so beautiful and they're so smart and blah, 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 right? It's it's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean that, again, not to knock your partner. It's to acknowledge that your perception of them is so biased when you're in love. In addition, most of us are attracted to mates in a way that we're not actively aware of, that was strongly influenced by our early childhood learning about romance, about intimacy, about what it means to be close to somebody. And in fact, we lie to ourselves oftentimes because we want to believe that something is true. We want to believe that our mate is the best because it elevates us. Yeah. We want to believe that we uh, entered into this relationship only for the purest reasons, even though oftentimes we enter into relationships because we're afraid of being alone or because we don't want to be single because we think that means something less about us. Or we're attracted to some people who are highly chaotic, for example, or really unreliable because that's very familiar. Mm -hmm. That's perhaps what we learned from our parents or that's what we experienced from our parents as young children if they weren't very emotionally available to us. And so re romantic relationships are really the breeding ground of playing out your insecurities as an adult. 
And part of the journey of finding a healthy dynamic with a mate is getting really, really, really aware of how honest you are with yourself, where your vulnerabilities lie, and how they contribute to who you want to date and how you interact with them when you're dating. That's really kind of the journey of understanding yourself that romantic relationships offer, but that is probably the hardest for us to see in ourselves because we're so protected against it. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's all, all, you know, it's all you're aware of. So unless you really step back and take that bird's eye view of your life and maybe look at some other models of what relationships could be like, you, you don't really see that what you're experiencing is not normal, maybe. Right. Right. Or, or the, the lies that you tell yourself about how you got here, um, would require you to confront some of your past in ways that are so painful at a different level that you really try to brush it off. You make excuses. You rationalize why you should stay with your partner, even when you know they're really not healthy for you, because the alternative is acknowledging that they're not healthy for you and that you were attracted to them because of a profoundly deep cut that you learned long ago that you weren't safe in romantic relationships or that you're not valuable enough for somebody to love you or that men are inherently cheaters or whatever it is that you would have to unpack and really explore in yourself. And that oftentimes is much more terrifying to us because those are some core beliefs that we often make starting when we're really young about love and ourselves and romantic partners that will bring up a whole host of past experiences around love that are very difficult to see and confront. But when you do, I'm going to give this big plug. When you do, it is probably the most freeing thing you can do for yourself. Because the more you understand who you are and are able to see what motivates your choices, the more freedom you have to change them. And when you can change your choices to reflect who you want to be and the values you aspire to hold and the type of relationship intimacy that you want to have, you will transform and emerge into a more empowered, honest, authentic version of yourself. Absolutely. Which is like the reason why you do this work, because obviously it it can be difficult and, and confronting and painful and not comfortable at times. But if you understand what it is you're working towards, it makes it a little bit easier. (laughs) So much. So, I mean, I oftentimes use self-disclosure when I speak about honesty, because it's so hard to see how you lie to yourself, right? It's a lot easier to see how other people lie to themselves. Mm. But I remember so vividly the first time that I fell in love. I was 18 years old. I was not equipped at all to fall in love. I had so much baggage, emotional baggage that I did not see or understand at the time. And as I went through that relationship, it emerged in some really problematic ways that hurt me tremendously, that hurt him tremendously. And I think had I had the opportunity to understand what I was lying to myself about and how it was manifesting, for example, things like he would 
want to go to a party with his friends. And I would feel immediate panic. Mm. Like, oh my gosh, he's going out with his friends. I'm freaked out. And I would look at myself and he would look at me going, what is wrong with you? I'm just going out with my friends. Why are you crying? Why are you having this reaction? And the truth was, I couldn't tell him because I had no idea why I was having that reaction. But of course, it created huge rifts between us in our relationship because I thought my emotional reactions were really reflective of him. Well, if he just, you know, took me with him to all of the parties he went to, or if we just spent all of our time together, or if he loved me more, then I wouldn't feel this way, right? Right. When in fact, of course, my emotional reactions were about me. They were about my own fear of trusting someone. They were about my own um, discomfort with allowing someone I loved deeply to have experiences that didn't include me. Yeah insecurities around um, stability of love. And those questions that I really had to dig deep to try to understand and ask myself, of course, had much more painful answers because they took me to look at where I learned what I learned about my own value and about the value of romantic relationships and partners and what you can expect from your partner. And my conclusions, although I believed them very strongly at the time, were very problematic and highly dysfunctional. And speaking of those kind of narratives and beliefs from childhood that that we pick up about what love means, we learn about love. As a psychologist, would you say that most people are unconsciously repeating patterns in their love life that are reflective of what they learned about love in childhood and let until they consciously address that story? Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, and more yes. You can't escape your upbringing. You can't escape the cultural learnings that you had. You can't escape the unconscious conclusions that you made watching your parents, watching friends, having early dating experiences, uh, any adverse childhood experiences that you had, what we call ACEs, things Mm -hmm. like abuse, neglect, uh, parental divorce, having a parent who is in prison or in jail or in trouble with the law, um, taught you something Mm -hmm. about yourself and everyone around you. And they dramatically influenced how you saw yourself, how you saw the world, the choices that you make, and certainly will emerge in your romantic relationships in ways that you can't possibly see unless you deliberately make an effort to see them. Yeah. And I'm I'm so glad that we are addressing that because one of the things that I hear really frequently from people who, you know, maybe don't have a very high ACE score or haven't had a lot of what we refer to as like the big T trauma in their life. And they'll say things like, oh, no, like I had a good childhood and, you know, my parents are still together and like, I don't really have anything big to complain about or worry about. And I think sometimes that can then prevent them from actually going back and and doing that exploration and examination and lead to that pattern of self-deception because we all have stuff, whether it's a small misunderstanding or a big trauma. And it's just so important to acknowledge that. We all have something. 
We all learned something. Even if you look back on your childhood and you would say, wow, my parents are happily married and they seem like they've always had a great relationship. You learned something from that. Mm -hmm. Maybe you learned that romantic relationships should never have conflict. Mm -hmm. Maybe you learned that if you love one another, you never fight or you don't express negative emotion or you should aspire to have one partner who completes you. And when you meet them, it should just work because love is enough to make relationships work, right? Mm-hmm. I guarantee that you learned something and it doesn't have to be this huge memory of a trauma. It could be many, many, many smaller quote unquote things that really aren't small at all, but mm-hmm learnings that you had over time. And remember, it isn't just your family relationships, although those are hugely influential. It's also the media. It's your community. It's your social group. It's your religious affiliation. It's any observation that you did starting from very early childhood that led you to make conclusions about how things quote unquote should be. So for example, in mainstream Western American cultures, we have these very strong messages about romantic love that you should have one soulmate Mm -hmm. and you meet them and it will work if you love each other enough that There is this coming together to complete each other. And then once you fall in love, clearly the relationship is going to work. And those messages are really very pervasive. And they're things that we learn from culture and learn from looking around. And if you believe those to be true, again, unconsciously, not that you rationally believe them to to be true. You probably rationally can see that they're very false, Mm -hmm. but You've internalized them and then you will apply them to your own life. When we look at social media data data in relationships, for example, you'll see that people oftentimes use social comparison and they think that they're looking at all their friends on Facebook or they're looking at all their friends on TikTok and they all look happy and they have pictures of smiling with their mate and it looks like everything is wonderful. It's not realistic. It's not an accurate depiction of what real relationships require. They take time and energy and effort, and they probably have a great deal of conflict in various phases of them. And so there is a deception in you somewhere, and it is affecting your relationships. And it's really more of a journey of self-discovery and self-honesty, think of it that way, that will promote your own development as a mate and help you find a partner who really aligns with your core values, who you really admire and respect and want to build a life with if, if that's what you choose to do with your time, not to say that you need to have a mate or that you should be dating, but that It takes a lot more introspective awareness to see who you are and what you want and what you need and then communicate that with another person who's trying to do the same thing, who's trying to understand who they are and what they need and what they want and hopefully come together in an authentic, honest way such that 
eventually after the honeymoon phase, after you've fallen madly in love with each other, and now you start to see a more accurate, honest depiction of who each of you actually is, you now have this wonderful opportunity to get to know each other more authentically and see if you want to continue spending time together. Because relationships are a choice, actually. Marriage is a choice. Being with someone is a choice. And the hope is that you eventually are with someone long enough that you choose to be with them because your life is enhanced with them in your life more so than it is if they were not in your life. And that's, I think, what gets you through the really tough times if you're going to stay together. Yes, absolutely. That it's, you know, it is going to be work at times. It's not going to be that effortless Disney fairy tale romance no. that many of us were conditioned <laughs> conditioned with growing up. It's it it's a choice. I love that word so much because it's it's something that you should enter into very intentionally. Yes. Every day you ask yourself, am I making choices that are consistent with the life that I want to live? Mm. And anytime you ask yourself that question and the answer is no, it's time to make a change. Yeah. Oh, wow. I could ask a million more questions and there's so, so much more I think that would be valuable to talk about. But um, for the sake of time, I know maybe we can have you back another time, but what is one sort of final piece of advice you would leave with somebody who is going through a breakup and maybe really struggling to let go of their ex? The most important thing that I want you to know if you're in the throes of a bad breakup is that you are just as valuable today as you were when you were with your ex. Mm. That your value actually has nothing to do with them. And I think oftentimes when you're in the throes of it, when you're really in your most miserable place, you somehow think that something is wrong with you or that you're broken or that you're never going to get over it because your ex somehow defined you in a way. And the reality is that you define you and you're just as valuable today as you were when you were with them. I love that so much. We need to shout that from the rooftops because so many people feel that their self-worth is defined by their relationship status and whether or not they have a partner. And what you just said is is just such a valuable um, knowing for for all of us to to really step into and embody and, and own that for ourselves. Absolutely. I would love to download it in every single person listening to this. Just <laughs> know. Just know that your value is determined by you, not anyone else, not your stuff, not how much money you make, not what you look like, is determined by you, your internal character, the choices that you make, the person you aspire to be. Yeah. And to to add a plug for you, if if you are going through a breakup, if you're listening to this and struggling to get over your ex, definitely check out Dr. Courtney's new book, Letting Go of Your Ex, because it really does have so many wonderful skills and tools and practices to help you actively move through the breakup, not just like, you know, read some nice words and and hope that it you feel better, but actually do something about it. Thank you for that. Absolutely. It is a lot of work. 
um, the book has a lot of CBT based exercises, as I said, in it, and you actually have to do them. You actively have to do something differently to move on, but it does get easier and it really, really, really will help if you have some tools to help you through it. Absolutely. So I will be sure to link your book in the show notes for anybody who's listening. Where else can people find you if they want to follow your work and what you're up to? Yes, you can go to my website, drcourtney.com. I also am on a number of social media channels, although I am not a social media expert and I don't interact with anyone on social media, just as an FYI okay, for ethical reasons. Yeah. Um, but I do post a lot of informational stuff on social media, videos and articles. I write a blog for Psychology Today. Mm. Really, my goal is to bring solid psychological material to people who can then use it to help themselves and apply it to their own lives. So you can follow me on Facebook at Choose Honesty um, or Dr. Courtney. I'm on Twitter. I just started a TikTok channel with informational videos, which is very foreign to me, but any of those locations you're welcome to. I also do workshops in some public speaking. So um, you can you can subscribe to my newsletter and it will make announcements there too if you ever wanted to do something more in person. Very fun. Amazing. I'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes so that everybody can can check it out and follow along. The, Wonderful. the last thing I love to ask people when they come on the show is, um, what is one of your favorite go-to self-care or wellness practices that you just like can't live without? I journal every morning, mm-hmm. absolutely every morning. And it is the number one recommendation that I would give to any of you. Even if it's five minutes, sit down with a pen and paper, reflect on your day Reflect on yesterday, reflect on your goals, what you're thinking about, if there's something that's preoccupying you. Um, Journaling is not only a really cathartic experience if you're going through something emotionally draining, but it also promotes self-awareness and personal expression in a way that can be incredibly healing. I could not agree more. Big fan of journaling over here. <laughs> Yay. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Courtney, for everything that you shared today, for for writing this book and putting this information out there. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to connect and share all of this. It was my pleasure. So happy to speak with you. And I really wish all the listeners the very best on their journey. Thank you so much. And yes, to everybody who is listening, if you know somebody who's going through a breakup and might benefit from hearing this, definitely pass along this episode to them so that they can learn from Dr. Courtney as well. And as always, until next time, have a happy, healthy, and love-filled day.